bow me in order of prayer. Father, we need your grace. And Lord, if not for your grace, Lord, we would not be here today. It is by your grace that we draw breath. It is by grace that we gather. It is by grace that we know of Christ and believe in him. And so, Father, in many ways this morning, I acutely feel the need for your grace. And so, God, would you help us, Lord, so that your vision would be ours, so that, Lord, um, your values would be ours, and what you desire would be our desires as well. So we thank you for Christ that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, good morning, Lighthouse. If this is your first time joining us, we're so glad you could be with us. We've been going through our Advent series, Tis the Season. And as you know, each Sunday we have sought to answer the question, Tis the Season for what? We've addressed how the season is a season to give, for serving, to love. And this morning, it is to share, specifically sharing your faith. We thought this topic would be appropriate because this Christmas season is just this unique context to spend time with people, friends, and family. Whether you've gone home or are coming home, I'd, I think for most of us, we probably have plans of some sort to spend time with other people. And even if you don't, right, it's one of the few times in the year that you can call someone to catch up with them and it not being out of place at all. Well, what, what would it look like for us to leverage those moments for the gospel, the most important thing that we could ever share. I think, though, that for a lot of us, including myself, the topic of sharing, specifically sharing your faith, can often result in hesitancy. And that hesitancy, I don't think, is because we don't love the gospel or that we don't love others. I think the hesitancy actually has to do with the awkwardness of it all. I mean, it's one thing to share the gospel if people are asking about Jesus or if a conversation naturally flows into it. But how do we share the gospel if it's not brought up or if there's no natural way to flow into it? And while there rarely are easy and natural ways to talk about Jesus, I think this season does create the ideal atmosphere to share about Jesus. Not just because it's about Christmas, but because of the relational context that it creates. And so really, this message can be applied for any season of life. But oftentimes, I think when we think of sharing the gospel, we think of it as this one-off conversation that happens during something like a Christmas dinner. And so it can be incredibly intimidating, even overwhelming. There's this incredible pressure to not only make sure we get the gospel right, but that we get the timing right as well. But what this season offers are our pockets of unhurried moments to just be with friends and family, to lean into relationships, to connect, connecting points where we get to enjoy each other's company and share life. And so what I hope to do in our time together is to encourage you to leverage this season well, because it's one of the few times that we get to slow down and have space to be with one another. In Lighthouse, I am convinced that it is in the context of sharing life that we are given an ideal atmosphere to share about Jesus. To that end, I, wanted to, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And as you turn there, 1 Thessalonians, as some of you might know, is more known for its study of the end times or eschatology or the return of Jesus. But it is so much more than that. According to one commentator, it is a classic of Christian friendship. For those of you who have been with us in our study of Galatians, where we've seen Paul speak with passion and even rarely seen holy anger for his readers, 1 Thessalonians is in many ways the opposite. It's a warm letter that expresses Paul's undeniable affection for 
his readers, who he calls his crown of boasting and his glory and joy. Paul absolutely loves this church. The relationships are near and dear to his heart. And yet he shares all this, not because he's being overly sentimental, but because it functions as an apologetic or defense of his ministry. Without getting into too much of the detail, sometime after the founding of this church in Acts 17, persecution arose, which forced Paul and Silas to flee. And in the midst of this persecution, the Jews of the city would use their absence in in an attempt to discredit the messenger and the message. The claim would have been, if Paul left you at your hour of need, what makes you think he or the gospel message is trustworthy? And yet, despite those attacks, the Thessalonians never wavered, according to chapter 1, verses 2 through 6. And it's because, according to chapter 1, verse 5, the gospel came to you not only in the word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, Paul and his companions' character testified to the truthfulness, the reliability, and the beauty of the gospel they proclaimed. And it was because the Thessalonians knew what kind of man Paul had proven to be. They had personally knew his heart better than anyone else, for he had spent time with them, investing his life in them and with them, sharing his life. Here's how our text puts it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 8. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our very selves, our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The sharing of Paul's life contributed to the sharing of the gospel and ultimately the Thessalonians' reception of the gospel. Because of the way Paul shared his life, the gospel was made all the more beautiful, all the more convincing. So much so that the Thessalonians had not only turned from idols to serve the true living God, but had become examples to believers everywhere. And so this morning, my hope is that you would share the gospel this Christmas season, but I also want to encourage you to share your lives and to not underestimate the importance of that. By sharing your lives in this unique season, it adorns the gospel in such a way that Christ has made beauty beautiful and worthy of trust. So with that being said, let's read 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Paul writes this. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from people, whether from you or or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, 
who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Our key idea for us this morning is this. Our sharing of the gospel is made beautiful when we share our lives. And so what does it look like for you to share your life in a way that adorns the gospel? Well, the first is this, conviction in your sharing. Chapter two begins the section that most commentators identify as Paul's defense. And as we saw this a bit already, but the way that he does this is by appealing to what the Thessalonians have come to know about Paul. You probably have noticed this in our reading of the text, how often Paul does this. Specifically, six times throughout our passage, he uses words like know, remember, and witnesses in verses 1, 2, 5, 9, 10, and 11, all to make this point that they knew of Paul's conduct, but also his heart and his ministry toward them back then and even now. And in verses 1 through 6, that seems to be the emphasis. Paul reminds the Thessalonians that he never had to use underhanded ways in, sharing, in the sharing of his gospel. He never had to deceive. He never had to win the approval of people in sly ways. Later on in verse 7, Paul will say that he was gentle among you. Literally, as some translations might say, we became infants among you. And what is being highlighted of Paul here is not so much that he had a mild, kind, or tender temperament, though that's probably true, but rather, like infants, he was innocent. The emphasis is on the sincerity of his character, that he didn't act in sneaky, dishonest ways to convince the Thessalonians. He didn't have to, because he was convicted that the gospel he was proclaiming was true. Paul stood by his product. And we see this in two ways. The first is conviction despite suffering. We see this because in verse 2, Paul tells us that he was willing to suffer for the gospel. He writes in verse 2, But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The text doesn't tell us how Paul suffered through, how suffered, though we might be able to deduce that based on Acts 16. But what, we, but what the text does tell us is that the Thessalonians knew. And this is significant for Paul because suffering can often cause us to compromise. And I think we understand this, right? Even in the smallest of ways. I think I'm one of the few people who prefer spring and summer over fall and winter. And for many of you, you, you love this season because it's finally relatively cold enough for you to break out the winter clothes and to layer up. Yet ironically, you choose to live in Southern California. But I also know that for many of you, winter also makes it that much harder for you to get out of bed. And, and, and I get that, right? I mean, if, if you know me, then you know that I tend to have this routine where I wake up at around 5 or 5.30 a.m. to go train at what we call Gym St. John. And while that has been the pattern and staple of my life, I'll confess to you that there are multiple times where I don't want to go simply because I just don't want to leave the warmth of my bed. You see, we, we, we want to gravitate toward what's comfortable. We want to reject difficulty and suffering, even in the smallest ways. And so what does it say of Paul that even despite suffering, he doesn't compromise? That he would still have boldness to declare the gospel. It paints a beautiful picture of the gospel. It declares that this Jesus is worthy of our trust, our belief, our love, even at the cost of ourselves. While it might not be beautiful to the one rejecting it, in spite of our suffering, believe that it paints a beautiful picture of it nonetheless. In fact, consider how beautiful it was to the Thessalonians and the impact it made upon them. 
This letter tells us that the Thessalonians not only responded to the gospel by turning away from idols to serve the true and living God, as we saw earlier, but the Thessalonians received the gospel likewise with full conviction, leading them to also become imitators of Paul, even a willingness to suffer for the gospel as well. What does this tell us about suffering? It tells us that suffering serves as a powerful apologetic for the gospel. Suffering can be the dark backdrop which makes the gospel shine all the brighter. We'll talk more about this in our third point, but for now, consider how our response in suffering displays a rare conviction that makes Jesus look beautiful. But this isn't simply because Paul had thicker skin. It was because Paul understood the message that he proclaims in verse 2, as well as verses 8 and 9, is the gospel of God. That leads us to our second way, conviction that the gospel is God's message. In other words, it wasn't his own message used to further his own desires. While he could have tweaked the message in order to fit his desires or toned down certain parts of it to make the message more palatable for the Thessalonians, Paul did none of that because he understood that this was God's message. It was God's gospel that was entrusted to them, according to verse 4. And for this reason, they cannot speak in any other way. They cannot speak to please man or any other way, but to please God who tests their hearts. See, knowing who we're accountable to sets the agenda for the actual content of the gospel itself. As messengers of the gospel, we are called to be faithful with the gospel message. While we want to be thoughtful about positioning and personalizing it so that it speaks to both the struggles and sins of our current setting, the actual message of the gospel itself should not change. God has entrusted us with his gospel, and we are called to simply be faithful messengers of that. Like some of you, one of the things that I've been tasked with by my wife during this season is giving out those beloved family Christmas cards. And as I make my way through the gym with a stack of white envelopes, I am to do one thing and one thing only. I am to track the appropriate persons down, give them the card, and that's it. I am not to tamper with the contents of the card, I am not to slip in a different picture or a card. I'm not to sneak in a velociraptor or two. And if for some reason, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> and if for some reason I'm not able to fulfill that goal, then that responsibility then goes to the U.S. Postal Service. But even then, nothing has changed. Just like me, they're still tasked with the responsibility of simply delivering the card. They're not called to tamper with the contents or anything else. And it's the same for us. As those entrusted with the gospel by God, we are messengers, simply responsible for faithfully delivering the contents of the gospel, contents which are set by God himself. And church, don't underestimate the importance of that. The message of the gospel is not a popular message, but in spite, but it says so much to others when we proclaim it in spite of how it is, of how it might be perceived. It tells others that it means something, even if others reject it. Moreover, for those who do receive it, consider how it affects them. Listen to what Paul says about the Thessalonians in chapter 2, verse, in verse 13. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you heard the gospel of God, or the word of God, which, we, which you heard from us, you, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God which is at work in you believers. So what is the gospel? 
While there are so many passages that we can turn to, like 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, and Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And in the new year, we'll be offering a class directed for unbelievers called Cross-Examined, which will introduce us, um, which will introduce them to and walk them through the gospel. But for now, I want us to consider four ideas that will help us to briefly summarize the gospel. God, man, Christ, and response. First, God. God is the creator of the universe. He sets the agenda for how we ought to live. And as the creator, there's no one more perfect nor worthy of worship, adoration, or obedience. Everything in creation is meant to find its highest and ultimate joy and satisfaction in him. Second is man. As man, we are creatures, which means we were created to worship him and obey, and obey him and enjoy him. But in our sin, we chose to worship other idols. We chose to rebel against him and find joy in creation rather than the creator. And as a result of us choosing to separate ourselves from him, all of us are righteously condemned to eternal separation from God in hell where we find the opposite of joy in him. Next is Christ. But God... And his grace and kindness sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to be born among us so that he might live sinlessly on our behalf, but also to undeservedly die on our behalf. He was born to become our substitute by giving up his life for us on the cross, thereby taking God's wrath in our place so that he might be condemned in our place so that we might receive the kindness and favor of God that Jesus deserved. But rather than stay dead, Christ rose from the dead three days later to show that sin has no power or dominion over him. And so that brings us then to our response, that we respond by believing in this message that scripture calls the gospel. If we respond with trust and turn from our sin and repent, then sin likewise has no power or dominion over us because we are united to him by faith. We receive the kindness grace, and mercy of God and are restored back into relationship with him because of Jesus alone. He alone is sufficient. That's what we celebrate this Christmas. Mild he lay his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. This Christmas, we celebrate the truth that Christ came to earth and was born as man so that he might die to save us. In the words of C.S. Lewis, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. And that's what we're called to faithfully proclaim in our sharing. But I think for a lot of us, this isn't where the issue necessarily lies. Most of us are able to share this message, but even if we are not too sure about the contents of the gospel message, we can be with enough review and study. For most of us, the issue is how do we actually leverage the, the the relational space that this Christmas season affords to share the gospel message. Well, Paul begins to tell us that starting in verses seven through eight, which brings us to our next point. We adorn the gospel in our sharing when we are opening our hearts and lives. So opening our heart and life. Listen to Paul's words in verses seven through eight. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. 
Take a moment just to camp on that statement. Affectionately desirous. This is not a hollow statement. In our study of Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10, you'll remember how Paul used the word accursed or anathema to speak against those who would proclaim a different gospel. And if the word anathema is one of the harshest statements in the entire New Testament, the phrase affectionately desirous is the polar opposite. It is a term found nowhere else in the entire New Testament. And even outside of the New Testament, it is hardly used. Often used to describe a parent's love for their beloved child who has passed away, it is a term of unsurpassed affection. One scholar puts it this way. Certainly, no other passage in the whole of the Pauline corpus employs such deeply effective language in describing Paul's relation with his converts. And so it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that by the end of verse 8, Paul, he reiterates this deep affection with these words, because you had become very dear to us. The affection that Paul speaks about here refers specifically to a Christian quality of love. He calls them very dear, which finds its roots in the familiar agape love, a love that does not seek to possess, but a love that seeks to give. It's a selfless love inspired by the same God who gave his son to the Thessalonians and to Paul himself. It's a selfless love that's supremely demonstrated in the gospel. And it is this very reality that surrounds and encapsulates verse 8. In fact, it's what shapes Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians. The Thessalonians were more than a sea of faces. They were more than converts and more than numbers to Paul. They meant so much to Paul, so much so in verse 8 that we read, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Paul was more than just a preacher. Sharing the gospel always had priority, but it was not exclusive to Paul. He gave of himself to the Thessalonians in personal ways. He committed to sharing his life with the Thessalonians, to give of his whole self. He stepped into their world and became one of them. The Christmas message is just that. Christ gave of himself to step into our world and to become one of us. This Christmas season, we have the unique opportunity to likewise do the same. And it's this very same Christ-like love that compels us to think outwardly and to have the long view. While we want to proclaim the gospel for sure, our proclamation of the gospel will only be made increasingly attractive when we open and invest ourselves in the lives of the unbelievers around us. In fact, loving others well will seek to do just that. Loving others as Christ loved us during this season is certainly no less than sharing the gospel but it is also certainly more. In their book, Place for a Purpose, authors Chris and Elizabeth McKinney help helpfully elaborate on this idea by explaining for us the difference between an ulterior motive and an ultimate motive. They write, when we have ultimate motives in relationships with our neighbors, we ultimately desire for them to come into relationship with God through Jesus. Rather than living as undercover Christians, we live out our faith and serve and love our neighbors while building meaningful relationships with them. We enjoy their friendship and we hope, pray, and look for appropriate opportunities to talk about our faith and what God has done in our lives. But it's broader than that. We genuinely care about their health, their family, the whole thing. When we have ulterior motives 
Any act of friendship, love, or service is done exclusively for the single goal of talking about God or getting in a church invite. So there's a sneakiness to our neighboring, a bait and switch. When someone says, I don't want to feel like a project, it's probably because they've interacted with someone who has been operating out of ulterior motives. In your notes, I've given you a QR code that displays in the slides to my left and right a chart from Place for a Purpose that I hope will be helpful as you seek to grow in loving better for the aim of not only sharing the gospel, but also sharing your own lives. And what this looks like practically, I'll address in our next point. But for now, consider just one of those ideas, the second one. When we view every step in the growth process, which is tilling, planting, watering, weeding, fertilizing, and harvest as important and valuable, this means that every act done Every part of sharing our hearts and lives, whether it's a simple five-minute conversation to an extended dinner invite, whether it's interest over the latest gadget that excites them to us sharing the gospel with them, all of this is part of God's plan and process of reaping the harvest, just like tilling, planting, watering, weeding, and fertilizing are. And why is this so important? For one, moving toward people with an ultimate motive helps us to faithfully imitate Paul, who not only shared the gospel, but his own self. It also helps us to imitate Christ, who could have simply come to earth and proclaimed the gospel and gone back to heaven. But he stayed on earth, teaching and preaching for sure, but also to spend time with people, loving them, healing them, being involved with their families and things like weddings. And don't underestimate the importance of that. Our focus can often drift solely to the harvest, that we forget the entire sowing process has its place in God-given and essential as well, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 through 9. God cares about the sowing process as much as he does the actual harvest itself. And when we understand that, church, it frees us. We're no longer constrained with the pressure of getting the gospel out with every passing moment. While we cannot neglect the actual sharing of the gospel, we no longer have to live in guilt that in that one Christmas dinner conversation, you weren't able to bring up the gospel. It frees us from guilt and fear. And it frees us to love because loving well is when we share our lives and it's essential in our sharing of the gospel. John Stott, he puts it this way. We love, we go, we serve. And in this, we have or should have no ulterior motive. Love has no need to justify itself. It merely expresses itself in service wherever it sees need. But it's also important because this is how we can love others better. Many of you guys already love the unbelievers in your life so well already, but consider how can you begin to love them even better? You can love them better by being more involved in their lives celebrating with them, weeping with them, sharing with them, and building relationships with them. We also love better because by building a relationship with them, we know them better, and therefore in a better position to share the gospel more relevantly and thoughtfully. In our counseling ministry, one of the things that we stress is the need to love before we can speak. Well, why is that any different when it comes to sharing the gospel? Consider the unsaved people in your lives, the ones that you'll see in this Christmas season. Are you seeking to love them well? To use the words of our counseling pastor, Pastor Tim, are you chasing after their heart? 
This season gives us opportunities to slow down and begin that process of being involved in their lives and begin that process of not only being involved in our lives, but to open our hearts and lives to chase after their hearts so that when we do share the gospel with them, we'll have done so thoughtfully, personally, in a way that makes Jesus look more beautiful and relevant because we have labored to chase after their heart. So what does that look like practically? Well, that brings us to our third point, where I hope it'll be the most helpful for you. What does it look like to share your life in a way that adorns the gospel? Our third point this morning, practically stepping into people's lives. How did Paul share his own self? Well, Paul, he answers that for us in verse nine by indicating that he engaged in manual labor. He writes, for you remember brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. While scholars contend based on Acts 18.13 that Paul labored as an artisan tent maker, the text doesn't indicate exactly what. Either way, the Thessalonians knew. But the significance of what they knew has nothing to do with what Paul did, but rather what he was practically, that he was practically involved in their lives. He was actually a part of their community, practically taking part of their life in their community. Why? So that he might not be a burden to them for the sake of Christ. Now, to be clear, this isn't saying that people come to Christ simply by observing how we live. Some of you might have heard this quote mistakenly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. It goes a little something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And while we can appreciate, I think, the sentiment behind it, because it attempts to fight a hypocritical lifestyle, for one, there's just so much wrong with that statement. I mean, for one, it's historically inaccurate, and really does not do any justice to St. Francis of Assisi. But more than that, it leads us to believe that there is no need to verbally proclaim the gospel when Romans 10, 14 declares otherwise. We need to actually verbally proclaim the gospel to be faithful to Jesus. And Paul would agree, which is why he says later in verse 9 that he did this while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. But with that caveat, we should recognize the importance of practical time and space with others. It's by practically stepping into people's lives and space that space is created for us to paint and proclaim a more lovely and compelling picture of Jesus. Look at verses 10 through 12. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encourage you and charge you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Now, there's a lot going on here, but what I want you to notice again are the words witnesses and the word know. How were they witnesses to Paul's conduct? How did they know how Paul interacted with them and how Paul encouraged them to live? Well, it was because Paul had spent time with them. He made himself available to them. He practically stepped into their lives in such a way that they could see the gospel displayed both in his living and in his proclamation. Just as we saw earlier throughout our text and even in verses 10 through 12, church, people need to know us. If we're going to make the gospel beautiful, people need to know us, but we also need to know them. And that cannot happen unless we practically step into their lives. So what would it look like for us to practically step into people's lives this Christmas season? What might living with the ultimate view that we talked about earlier look like? 
How do we practically create space so that we might know others and others know us so that we can paint a more stunning and convincing picture of Jesus? Well, two ideas for us. The first is create space for witness. Now, most of us already have plans to do this this Christmas season. And for some of us, it's a one-time Christmas dinner. For others, perhaps it's an extended time being at home with friends or family. But I think for a lot of us, we find that those moments, even extended moments, aren't long enough, especially if it's people we haven't seen in a long time or we won't get to see again for a long time. Even in our text, it suggests a measure of time. And while that might be discouraging, let me encourage you to leverage that time, not necessarily by trying to share Jesus then and there, but consider seeing this season as part of the process, whether it's in the beginning or anywhere else. And what if you were to use this Christmas season as a connecting point, to use this moment simply to give you access into connecting consistently and regularly? Here's the thing. This Christmas season doesn't have to be the only time that you get to be a witness of Christ. It can be one of many. And so can you begin to view that season in this light? And more importantly, can you intentionally make it so that it's not the only time? It might be things like more frequent get-togethers after the season so they can witness how you live out the gospel like the Thessalonians did of Paul. It might be more frequent get-togethers so they can listen to you, share your faith, how your faith plays an integral part of your life like the Thessalonians did with Paul. You may not get it all out in one conversation. You may not get it all out this entire Christmas season, but that's okay. In fact, it's more than okay. It's a grace. It's a grace because it encourages not only our unbelieving friends and family to get to know us more deeply, but it encourages us to, do, to get to know them more deeply. Understand that an extended conversation allows us more in-depth knowledge of their own hearts so we can better communicate a more in-depth Jesus to their hearts. The thing with creating space for witness is that we can continue to do so and take as much time as we need to be a witness to Christ. So enjoy this upcoming season with unbelieving family and friends. And if by God's grace you're able to share the gospel with them, great. But if not, see it simply as the first line in a longer conversation about Jesus. Use this space this Christmas that this Christmas season affords and create even more space to witness. In fact, to help you, we've created, even, we've created two more additional spaces for you to share the gospel with your family and friends. The first is this upcoming Christmas Sunday where Pastor Kim will be sharing how the hope of the gospel allows our weary world to rejoice. And along with that, as I mentioned earlier, this upcoming January 2024, we'll be having a three-part class specifically geared toward unbelievers called Cross-Examined, where we'll share not, not only just the storyline of scripture with them, but also what the gospel is and also invite any questions that they might have. And we invite you to likewise sit with them so it can serve as a launching pad to other conversations about Jesus. Stepping into their lives and creating that space for witness was important for Paul. And it was also important for the Thessalonians because by doing so, Paul's entire life was on display before the Thessalonians. There was nothing that they did not know, which is why Paul can write as he does. And that brings us then to our next subpoint: create space for transparency. I think when it comes to the gospel, there are a few things that are more compelling 
than our testimonies. But it's not because in those testimonies we witness people uh, overcome great adversity, though sometimes that is true. It's not even because there's necessarily a happy ending that encourages us because sometimes there isn't. But I think we're often moved by these testimonies because in such stories, there is this transparency about lives that serve to give us a clearer and more hopeful picture of Jesus. And again, consider the Thessalonians. What was it about Paul's ministry that made the gospel more persuasive? It's that they knew Paul. They knew him deeply. And so in what ways do people know you, like really know you? For people to know us, it requires transparency. And yet it's not for the sake of us. It's always for the sake of elevating Jesus. I think it's unique that Paul would compare himself to the father with his children in verse 11, because if there is one thing a father should do, it's to teach their children, something we see in verse 12, but also to be a model for their children, according to verse 10. And for myself, this is a particularly convicting idea because as a father to three children, if there's anything I'm constantly aware of, it's whether or not I'm modeling well to them. And one of the hardest places for, my, for me is my sin. My children are very much aware of my sin, but are they aware of how I model myself to them in light of my sin? In my anger toward them, Am I modeling a hypocritical lifestyle that says my sinful anger toward them is justified because they weren't listening to me? Or am I modeling a life that confesses to them, Harper, Lucy, Judah, I was impatient toward you. Even if you weren't listening to Dada, there is absolutely no excuse for Dada's impatience and sin. Will you forgive him? Will you forgive me for being impatient? I do my best to model that to them, not because I'm trying to be the hero of the story, but because I want for them to see the beauty of a Savior who in our sin doesn't glare at us while we nervously approach him. I want them to see the beauty of a Savior who invites us to confess our sin. I want them to see the beauty of a Savior who loves us and is always willing to forgive when we come to him. I want them to see the beauty of a Savior who is so gracious and merciful that it frees us to ask for forgiveness. And it's not just me. It's not just my children. It's all of us. All of us, including the unbelievers in our life, sin as well. But rather than cover it up and act as if we're perfect, can you begin to be transparent about your sin as well? Can you speak about the hope of Christ, the hope of a Savior who forgives even the most frequent and the worst of sins? Or how about suffering? We talked about this a bit earlier, and I said I'd circle back to this. But like I said, suffering can be this powerful apologetic for the gospel. That suffering can be the dark backdrop which makes Christ and the gospel shine all the brighter. You see, in speaking about suffering, we have this unique moment to share how according to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10, that Christ's grace is sufficient for us, even so because his power is made perfect in our weakness. Suffering is what allows us to say with Paul, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. One hymn writer puts it this way. "'Tis in this way, the Lord replied, 
I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. Suffering elevates the beauty of our Savior who sustains us, loves us, and cares for us in the midst of difficulty. And while not all of us might suffer the same way that Paul or the Thessalonians do, suffering is a universal struggle nonetheless. The unbelievers in our lives understand what it means to suffer. And so right off the bat, you have a connecting point (coughs) with the unbelievers in your life. We all suffer. But while suffering may seem random or without meaning, as believers, we have this unique opportunity to, to witness to Christ and make him beautiful in the midst of our suffering. In suffering, we can declare that as hard as it is, and as much as we hurt, yet Jesus alone is sufficient, not just for our salvation, but for everyday life, even in our suffering. This doesn't necessarily mean that we're happy or joyful all the time, but it does mean that we don't look to a change of circumstance to get us through suffering. Hope and suffering, be, hope and suffering becomes more than just wishful thinking. Hope, and, hope is found in the one who is loving, is wise, and sovereign overall. In suffering, our hope is tethered not to the absence of difficulty, is tethered to the one who is with us in the difficulty and promises to one day dry our tears, even the tears that currently mark our faces and bring all remnants of what is wrong in the world to an end. I promise that he will deliver on because he has come and entered into our story and has delivered the decisive blow to suffering at the cross. Can you imagine the kind of impact it might have upon the unbelievers in your life. If you presented them with a vision of hope when you're transparent with your suffering, even darkened hues have its place as we seek to paint a beautiful picture of Jesus. Now, in saying that, I'm not trying to put a silver line on the dark clouds of your suffering. Some of you are going through and perhaps have gone through some profound suffering. So please understand that I'm not trying to tack on a happy ending to your suffering when you feel like you're still in the first chapter. But I hope that even then, you could see that how, at the very least, Scripture is not silent on this topic. For one, God recognizes the heart of suffering and speaks to the heart in such a way so that your expression of grief is never without words, words that can be found in the pages of Scripture itself. And let that be your hope. Because if you can begin to see that, then you're one step closer to believing that God God has even more to say on this topic, a thousand things to say, including the fact that through suffering, Jesus will be made all the more increasingly beautiful to you and others. And not only much to say, but specific definitive hope for you. This Christmas season, you have this unique opportunity to slow down and to catch up with the relationships in your life. And so can you be transparent about the suffering in your life, even if just for a bit? And in your transparency, can you begin to speak a better hope to the suffering in the world by first starting with your own life? Let me end with this. Like I mentioned before, this Christmas, we celebrate the season when Christ gave of himself and stepped into our world. And this Christmas season, we have the unique opportunity to do the same. But we do so with the ultimate hope that one day the unbelievers in our life 
might be able to one day be called, according to verse 12, into his kingdom and glory. So my encouragement for you, church, is this. Step into their world. Step into their world with the good news that God has stepped into their world in hopes that one day they may step into his kingdom and glory. We bow in order of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we are thankful that the ultimate example of sharing not only the gospel, but our very own selves was not even Paul, but it was Christ. That this Christmas season, we get to celebrate the, the reality that Jesus entered into our world to live amongst us so he can understand, so that he can feel, so that he can, <coughs> so he can empathize with our suffering. And God, it's because of that that we have hope. So Jesus, thank you for doing that. Thank you for entering into our world. Help us, therefore, likewise, to enter into others so that, Lord, we might give them the hope of Christ. For his sake we pray, amen.